0: To the Murder Book, a true crime podcast, where each week we will present notorious crimes, controversial cases, unsolved cases, missing persons, and serial killers. Details of the crime scenes, childhood of the murderer, and the life of the victims will be explored. Each episode is translated into Spanish. We have a new episode every Monday, and you can listen to it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Radio, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and other platforms you use to listen to your podcasts. Let's begin. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution for children under 13. This is Part 2 of Joran van der Sloot's story. And in this episode, we will continue to talk about the mysterious disappearance of Natalie Holloway in 2005 in Aruba and the murder of Stephanie Flores in Lima, Peru in 2010, simultaneously. Let's begin. It's June 1st, 2010 in Lima, Peru. Uh, the two brothers, uh, Richie and Enrique uh, Flores, Stephanie's siblings, they f- just find out that Joran van der Sloot has been involved in the disappearance and possible murder of a young woman in Aruba five years before, and. According to Enrique, he was telling his brother Richie what he found out. He said they both disappeared on May 30th. He took Stephanie on the five-year anniversary of the first girl's abduction. And like Stephanie, the girl in Aruba had also met Joanne in a casino, and despite countless searches, her body had never been found. Upon hearing this latest development, Richie knew that Stephanie was in grave danger and he and Enrique needed to actively join the search. Viva Flores was their backyard after all. The two men knew the hotels that foreigners tended to frequent. If Van der Sloot was still in the area, they would find him. Just after midnight, Richie picked up his brother Enrique, who was in, waiting for him in the front door, in his hand his brother held a photo of Stephanie as well as a photo of Vandersloot that his wife had printed from the internet. Enrique was determined to find his sister, but from what he had read about Vandersloot's past, he realized that this was probably not going to end well. In the photograph he it was a little old. Uh, he could see a smiling Joran holding a sweatshirt that uh, that had the words, it's not nice to stare on it. Armed with the color photos, the two brothers began driving from hotel to hotel. Van der Sloot was a tourist after all. He must be a hotel guest somewhere. The first step was La Casa Roja, a budget hostel they knew was popular with Dutch tourists. It was approaching 1 a.m. when the Flores brothers rang the doorbell, of the three-story uh, colonial mansion. The owners were Harry Krishnas, who ran a small vegetarian restaurant one of uh, out of, the, of their guest house. And in spite of the late hour, they welcomed the brothers inside. However, neither they nor their guest recognized Joran from the photograph. From there, the two began a grid search of the bars, casinos, and hotels around Atlantic City Casino, but no one recognized Van photo. In the mean, in uh, one thing, that the the brothers were thinking is that they both knew that Stephanie was more likely dead, and neither of them wanted to put it to words. Three days had passed since. She has last seen in the company of a suspected killer. Their sister was not one to be exploited, but physical strength has its limits. They had both viewed the casino video and saw how Van der Sloot had towered over her. It's, if his intention was to kill her, she would not have had much of a chance. Shortly before three in the morning, Richie's uh, cell phone rang. And he did not recognize the man's voice on the other end of the line, and he never learned his identity. But the man said that he had news about Stephanie, and he said, go to the Hotel Tac on Republica de Panamá. The caller said, and then he hung up abruptly. Richie wasn't sure what to think, but they immediately headed toward the location. Um... The two brothers were unprepared for what they encountered as they approached the, the hotel. The entire block was awash in police lights. Investigators were gathered on the sidewalk outside the, the building. And the ground floor of the hotel housed a small casino. Oh. Um, it's more like uh, slot machines. And again... It was surrounded by, by cops. Although the, brother, the brothers were not certain, they feared the worst. Richie and Enrique got out of their car. They walk up to the yellow police tape. They identify themselves to a uniformed policeman. The officer told them to wait there. And the officer talked to a detective who approached the two men and gently informed them that their sister was dead. A hotel employee had found her body earlier in the, in the evening and it appeared that she had been there for several days. Not wanting his father to learn about Stephanie's murder on the news, Richie ran to his car, he left Enrique at the scene, he raced back to the family's house, and he had one of the most difficult conversations of his life with his father. His father did not take the news well, and demanded that Richie take him to the crime scene. When the time came, Richie volunteered to make the identification of his later sister himself. He did not want the task, but he wanted to spare his father additional uh, anguish. And head down, his heart was racing. He followed the officers up to the stairs, stopping outside of the room 309, Uh, There were some detectives there that tried to prepare him for what he was about to see. And his sister's body was on the floor, covered in dry blood, uh, badly beaten. She was hardly recognizable. But it was Stephanie. There was no doubt Stepping out into the sidewalk, Richie locked eyes with his father, who appeared so much smaller than the proud fearless man who raced cars on steep mountain roads for sports. He he looked broken. He admonished his father not to climb the stairs to the third floor. Investigators agreed, telling the, the elder florist that he should remember his daughter the way she was. The three florist men remained outside on the sidewalk as police secured the hotel. Ricardo was doing his best to contain his emotions when he heard his wife's frantic cries. Somebody in the crowd yelled, Let her through, she's she's the mother. But somebody also yelled that her daughter was dead. The news was too much, and Stephanie's mother collapsed on the sidewalk. She was carried back to the family's car while relatives called for an ambulance. Paramedics arrived, and within a few minutes, they gave her medication to to help calm her. And even so, she was in no condition to remain on the scene. Richie volunteered to drive her home, where there were some relatives already waiting there. Although Richie wanted his father to go with her, Ricardo refused to leave. He insisted on remaining outside on the sidewalk until his daughter's body was removed from the hotel. Cap- Captain Juan Callan was on duty that night. He had been a member of the Peruvian National Police Force for two decades, the last eight years' working homicide. His detective work was legendary in, in law enforcement circles. General Guardia, who was the director of the Peru's Criminal Investigations Division, made it clear to his lead detective that this was a high-profile case with a international implications. The dead woman was the daughter of a famous race car driver, and the prime suspect, Johan van der Sloot was a Dutch national and suspected murderer who was later um, who was last seen fleeing uh, in a car similar to Stephanie's. Uh, Detective Kayan quickly briefed his team's members on the investigation unfolding in Miraflores. The body had been there for several days, meaning Van der Sloot had a significant jump on them. Kayan had heard about the Flores case on the news, but had not followed it closely. He knew his colleagues in the kidnapping division had been working around the clock since the woman had been reported missing. The detectives arrived at the hotel and it was a frenzy scene. Members of the local media were trying to get inside the hotel and swarm investigators as they climbed out of their cars. The victim's father immediately confronted Captain Kayan uh, Ricardo Flores was on the sidewalk and begging to be led upstairs to see his daughter. Cayan ordered uniformed officers to keep the reporters at bay. Taking Ricardo aside, he explained that his son Richie had already identified the body and for the moment no one else was allowed to enter the hotel. Checking the door to room 309, uh, Kayan noted no signs of forced entry. The window was open. The smell of the composition was faint but unmistakable. Kayan and his men surveyed the bloody scene before slowly backing out of the room. The CSI team was and a representative from the prosecutor's office were on their way and he did not want to do anything to compromise the evidence. Kayan promised himself that he would bring Stephanie Flores killer to justice. Kayan began interviewing hotel staff and quickly discovered that a guest on the fourth floor had returned to the hotel earlier in the evening worried about Jovan. Vandersloot Adeli Marchena, the receptionist who had discovered the body, told Cayenne that Elton Garcia, a guest for more than a month, had come into the lobby shortly after she had found the body. He seemed worried that Jovan and the missing Peruvian woman whose disappearance was being followed on the news had had both been kidnapped. Adeli thought the timing of Garcia's inquiry was strange, The police had been summoned by her boss, but they have not yet arrived, and here was Garcia at the reception desk, inundating her with questions about room 309 resident. Her exchange with the man in room 406 was disturbing enough to compel her to mention it to homicide investigators. Cayenne took the stairs up to the fourth floor to interview the possible witness in room 406. The guest registry had listed Garcia as Albanian, but Callan was a bit surprised when, this, when the man in, in that opened the door addressed him in Spanish. Callan made a rapid assessment of Garcia. He looked like he hadn't sleep, slept in days. After introducing himself and refer, referencing Vandersloot, the experienced detective, to a conversational tone, he knew the interview process could be intimidating. In response to Kayan's questions, Garcia explained that he had been uh, born in Albania but was married and lived in Uruguay, where he ran a small business. He had come to Lima the last week of April to participate in the Latin America uh, Poker Tour. Garcia explained that earlier in the evening he had attended a dinner party at La Rosa Nartica, which is a bar and restaurant on Pier 4 of the Lima's Beach Circuit. And the event was being hosted by the Atlantic City Casino to celebrate the kickoff of the Latin American Poker Tour. This was the first time the tournament would be held in Peru, and local celebrities and government dignitaries were expected to attend. Garcia explained that even though Jovan was not registered to play in the tournament, he told him he had come to Lima for that purpose only. Joran knew that some of the best players in the world would be a La Rosa Nautica that night, and he wanted to be there. But 11, by 11 p.m., when Joran had still not arrived, Garcia said he started to worry. He did not know Joran well, but his failure to show up had been a con- uh, concern. Um, he had seen the missing persons' reports about Stephanie Flores on the news, the news and the internet had suggested kidnapping as a possible motive, and Gar- Garcia thought Vandersloot might be a victim as well. As the conversation continued, Callan discovered that Garcia was acquainted with Stephanie as well as Vandersloot. Not only did Garcia know Flores, he told the detective that he had been the one to introduce Joran to her. At, uh, at the poker tables one night. Although he had not seen Jovan at the casino for several days, he had not made the connection that his friend was missing until he failed to turn up at the restaurant. Jovan was a Dutch foreigner, and unless he was checking in with someone at home on a regular basis, no one would even know he was missing. Garcia reasoned. Garcia said that he expressed his fear to one of the table supervisors, Cathy Herrera, and he has asked Cathy to call the hotel tack to see if Duran was there. Um, Cathy uh, have come to know Stephanie Flores as a regular at the gaming tables, and she has seen her sitting with the Dutch foreigner on two separate occasions that past week. And she hadn't thought much of, of it at the time. Jovan was a quiet person. He seemed devoted to the task of playing poker. And on Saturday, May 22nd, Kathy saw uh, Jovan at the casino, and she invited him to attend Sunday services at the Emmanuel Evangelical Church in downtown Lima, The following morning, Kathy arrived at the church, and she was pleasantly surprised to see Joran there. After the service, she walked with him out to the street and helped him hail a cab. This was the only time she had ever seen him outside of the casino. She was the one who called the hotel tech asking for Joran. That would explain that call that the receptionist had earlier in the night, but Kajan thought, why had not Garcia made the call himself? He was fluent in Spanish. He had been a guest of the hotel for more than a month. So he asked uh, Garcia, can you tell me where you were at 520 in the morning on the morning of Sunday, May 30th? Kajan asked, if this hotel guest has anything to do with the murder in room 309, he didn't want him to have the opportunity to concoct an alibi. Garcia claimed he was nowhere near the hotel tat the morning Stephanie was seen alive. He had stayed up most of the evening playing poker at the Atlantic City before heading to the Tequila, discotech in San Isidro with several casino employees. The group partied until well past dawn, and he did not return to the hotel until ten o'clock that morning. Even though Garcia claimed to have met Van der Sloot for the first time in Peru, he suspected, um, the detective suspected, that the two had a history. Perhaps they knew each other from Aruba. Discovering Joran's phone number plugged in in Garcia's cell phone contact, it kept Kayan's suspicious percolating. So from there, he goes back to room 309, um, to keep working on the case, on the crime scene. From the state of the composition, the body appeared to have been there for at least three days. Yet no one had smelled anything unusual. Another troubling event. The employees of the hotel called the hotel's owner about the body before they alerted the police. Police quickly located the owner of the hotel, Ta Bo who is a 26-year-old Chinese immigrant uh, who spoke fluent English uh, and Spanish. Boto told, uh, told investigators that he first learned of the body in room 309 when he received a call from a hotel employee on June 2nd, about 40 minutes past midnight. But instead of dialing 105, the Peruvian equivalent of 911, he raced to his hotel to assess the situation for himself. Uh, Quambo told the officers that he had no idea who Jovan van der Sloot was. He explained that he had no regular presence at the hotel. He employed managers to supervise the, supervise the day-to-day business. In fact, he hadn't even seen the the name van der Sloot until he looked up room 309 in the guest registry when he was dialing 105 and discovered that the Dutchman had been a guest of his hotel since May 14. While he was waiting for the police to arrive, the owner had done a bit of video sleuthing on his own. He had isolated footage of Joran entering the lobby several days earlier in the company of a female guest. He only had enough time to review a very small portion of the tapes, the entire hotel was fitted with with cameras. The team assembled a, uh, a chilling video timeline. The actual murder was committed out of detection with no cameras monitoring the interiors of the guest rooms. What was recorded was invaluable. Jovan van der Sloot's movement from the time he entered the hotel lobby with Stephanie Flores in the early morning hours of Sunday, May 31st, until he escorted her into his third-floor guest room minutes later. And that was all in on tape. After arranging the footage into a chronological sequence, the detective reviewed it from beginning to end in disbelief. Evidence like this was rare in their line of work. The video marked with a time code of 5.20 a.m., shows Jovan van der Sloot approach the reception desk to request his room key. On the tape, van der Sloot is seen wearing a wrinkled beige long-sleeved shirt and blue jeans. He flashes the receptionist a broad smile as she hands him the key, twirling the key from the end of the plastic keychain in his left hand. He looks confident and amused. His companion, Stephanie Flowers, Trails behind, head hung low. Her movement seems sluggish, almost as if she had been drugged. Stephanie is wearing a black t shirt and a dark pair of jeans. Key in hand, Vandersluter Flores takes the stairs up to his room on the third floor. Moments later, another camera positioned near the door to room 309, shows Stephanie following Joran into the hotel room. They enter his room like two strangers getting on an elevator, no signs of playfulness or flirtation. Joran does not even extend the fundamental courtesy of allowing ladies to go first. He can be seen turning on a light from a switch just inside the entryway before the door to the room closes. Several hours pass before Giovanni exits room 309 without Stephanie. He steps into the linoleum-floored hallway, and emerging at the lobby level, he walks past the reception desk. He has changed his clothes. He is now wearing a red, white, and black striped short-sleeved polo. He does not deposit the room key with his receptionist as is customary, He leaves by the hotel's front door at exactly a minute after 8 a.m. 11 minutes later, 8.12 a.m., Joran returns to the lobby stairwell, stairwell, carrying two disposable paper coffee cups, one in each hand, and heads up to the third floor. He enters his hotel room. At 8.35 a.m., carrying the same cups, he comes out, looks up and down the hallway, he closes the door, locks it using his room key, and soon he gestures as he's, as he's knocking on his door. He lingers for a few minutes, pacing around in circles, shifting his weight back and forth, before finally staring directly into the camera. So he walks downstairs uh, to the lobby. He approaches the reception desk, smoking a cigarette, exchanges, conversations with the receptionist. He makes a hand signal as if he's holding a key and turning an imaginary lock. And at 8.39 a.m., a a hotel employee, Reynardo Cruz, unlocks the door for the Dutchman with a spare key. Joran stands behind him, the cigarette pinched between his thumb and forefinger, the two cups of coffee in his left hand. He looks nervous. Renato Cruz, he pushes the door open, a crack, walks away. And Van der Sloot again enters the room, and 15 minutes later, he emerges from room 309 for the last time, wearing a small green backpack on his back, carrying a beige case in his left hand. And moments later, the lobby camera records him in his final departure from the hotel tag. He says nothing to the receptionist as he walks out into the morning sun. He climbs into what appears to be Stephanie's Jeep and disappears. Okay. So room 309 is, of course, is an evidentiary goldmine. Police investigators produced 53 color photographs and a detailed hand-drawn sketch of the room before they were done. Investigators were quick to realize that the long-sleeved shirt that the victim was wearing, now soaked in blood, was the same shirt Vandersloot had been wearing when the two entered the hotel. It appeared the suspect had dressed the young woman in the shirt after killing her. Why someone would put his clothes on a victim was shilling to contemplate. The front of the shirt and the left sleeve are not buttoned up, nor are the left and right front pockets. The shirt on the victim's body is loose, and it looks as if it it is many sizes too big. Scrapings were taken from under the victim's fingernails for DNA analysis. Police noted that no hair from the assailant or other clues were visible or obvious. The fingernails of both hands appeared broken and jagged as if she had put up a violent struggle. Police left the room with evidence, carefully boxed, bag, and tag, including five credit tickets from the tables at the Atlantic City Casino, a pair of bloody light blue All-Star sneakers, size six and a half, a pair of bloody blue jeans, size 36, and many other items, including cigarette lighters, clothing, and an empty black canvas case. They also found a piece of paper torn from the page 38 of an appointment book with the handwritten words, Tony Igmasi, $600, and then there were two illegible signatures. Nearly there, there was um, some nearly empty plastic Coca-Cola bottles, disposable paper cups from Holly's Cafe were recovered. They were sent for toxicological testing, Cigarette uh, butts collected from the ashtray were also collected and labeled. Uh, There was a Prince tennis racket discovered on the floor near the TV stand. Uh, It was initially treated as a potential murder weapon, but the racket had no more than usual use, wear and tear, paint scratches, minimally frayed strings, uh, no signs that it had been used in of violent action were evident. Lab tests would confirm no trace blood or anything else of, of criminal interest on the racket. Uh, Stephanie's f- uh, flower power wallet lay on the floor, emptied of its cash and credit cards. Her Black telephone, phone, which family and friends have been calling for days, lay silent on a countertop, its battery drain. The victim was covered in bruises and in advanced state of putrefaction, bloated, almost beyond recognition. Blood that had oozed from the nose was clotted. Dark bruising circled both eye sockets. Both knees had red bruising, and the multiple bruises on the feet were grotesquely greenish, Contusive wounds to the back of the second finger of the right hand and abrasions on the chin and the right cheek added to the inventory of obvious injuries. The bruising around the neck was curious. The police could not determine if the marks were produced by manual strangulation or hanging. The crime scene did not support any obvious sexual assault, but swabs were collected for further testing. There were recoverable fingerprints everywhere on the outside of the transparent ashtray, on the nightstand, on the plastic soda bottles, three disposable cups, on the gaming tickets from the Atlantic City Casino. Uh, The crime scene uh, technicians now spray the room with lumino to test the the blood. Uh, Lumino... Reveals invisible blood by, um, chemiluminescence. So it glows when it mixes with a specific reactive agent. At crime scenes, the reactive agent is the iron in the hemoglobin of human blood. So after luminal is applied, even trace amount of blood are going to emit an eerie blue light. So the test in this case was shocking. And revealing, when they turned on the lights, glowing traces of luminescent blood were everywhere—under the bed, on the floor by the dresser, on the on the bone collar tie of the bathroom floor. Um, the detectives now turned his uh, the focus on to the bathroom, and not only did the sink test positive for blood, but the shower floor also glowed with the evidence. The suspect appeared to have showered before fleeing the scene. The police developed a straightforward working theory. They believed Stephanie had been lured to the room, was beaten, robbed, possibly even tortured in an attempt to get the passwords to the credit cards that were missing from her wallet before finally being strangled. Van der Sloot's mother's operandi, they concluded, was selecting his victims in casinos and/or gaming rooms where women who play these games go, and through deceit he obtains his victim's money. Plain and simple: this was a robbery turn homicide. It was possible that Gerard needed Stephanie's credit card numbers to pay the entry fee for the tournament. Perhaps he had lured Stephanie to his room with hopes he could convince her to loan him the money to register and she had refused. Like in the United States, under Peruvian law, all individuals are presumed innocent until proven otherwise. However, the five detectives working the case knew that they had their man. Now, they needed to find him. May 31st, 2005, Natalie Holloway's father, Dave, had been opposed to his daughter traveling to Aruba with her classmates. He did not like the idea. He had fears about safety. He was concerned that seven chaperones for 124 teenagers were insufficient. Common knowledge held that the island's tourism slogan is One Happy Island, hinted at Aruba's drinking age which was barely enforced. In Dave's opinion, an 18-to-1 student to chaperone ratio, even with the utmost diligence, was inadequate. Dave thought that $985 cost for a five-day jaunt was too extravagant for high schoolers. The trip would take place even without without his blessing. His ex-wife, Beth, had sold custody of their two children and she had been one to sign the consent form for the five-day Caribbean getaway. Despite his trepidation, Dave gave his daughter a check for $500, half the cost of the vacation, as a gift, telling Natalie to do with it as she pleased, knowing that she would probably use it to finance the trip to Aruba. He never expected the telephone call he received on Monday, May 31st. The first call was from his son Matt, saying that Natalie had not shown up for her flight. Next came word that she had last been seen leaving a bar in the company of a Dutch tourist. Although Dave and his ex-wife rarely spoke, he played an active role in raising Natalie and Matt. Natalie's graduation day, or one day before her trip to Aruba, was the last time the father and daughter were together. Now less than one week later, phone calls were bringing him horrible news. His daughter had simply vanished. Dave wasted no time contacting family. Everyone wanted to leave for Aruba immediately, but there were no commercial flights until morning. His ex-wife had a friend with a private plane, but he didn't have such connections. When Dave, his brother Phil, and his brother-in-law Michael stepped off the commercial jet in Queen Beatrix International Airport on June 1st, no team of prearranged personal escorts met them. However, they managed to solicit a map of the island and directions to the nearest police station from employees at the rental car counter. Dave had assumed that on such a small island the disappearance of an American tourist would have been high priority for law enforcement, but the officers at the first two precincts he visited knew nothing about his missing daughter. Finally, he was directed to the Nord police station where he found a detective who was familiar with Natalie's missing persons investigation. From the moment they shook hands, Detective Dennis Jacobs, an narcotics officer who announced he was in charge of the investigation, disturbed Dave. He did not extend condolences about Dave's daughter or reassurances that they were on top of the case. Instead, he posed the question of how much money did he have. Dave was in such disbelief that he assumed he must have heard the question incorrectly, and he just returned to the issue and asked what was being done to find Natalie. If this man was in charge, why hasn't he be out looking with the police search team? In fact, was there a police search team? The detective did not seem to be taking Natalie's disappearance seriously. And one of the things that he said to Dave was, Oh, this happens all the time. She'll probably turn up in a few days. Dave couldn't even believe the, the treatment he was receiving, and the detective even suggested to Dave to indulge in a cocktail from the very bar where his daughter was last seen. Everything about this police officer seemed offensively inappropriate in Dave's eyes. Dave quickly realized that he was on his own. What Detective Jacob, uh, Detective Jacobs have not told Dave Holloway was that he and fellow officer Sergeant Kelly had spent the prior morning interviewing Jovan van der Schloot, one of the three men last seen with Natalie. The interview, taken in Papiamento at 11.20 in the morning on Tuesday, May 31st, was the first of more than a dozen statements the teen made to police about his night with Natalie. His story was similar to the tale he had told the group of Americans from Alabama in the driveway of his home that past Monday night, but there there were some new details. Jovan painted Natalie as both drunk and belligerent, saying that when he and his friends, Deepak and Satish, pulled up in front of the Holiday Inn, after the journey to the lighthouse, Natalie opened the car door and fell to the ground. And he said, quote, I went out by the same door and helped her get up. The girl told me not to touch her and pushed my hands away. I watched as she then walked in the direction of the lobby of the Holiday Inn. I had not seen anyone in the lobby. My friends Deepak and Satish had told me, they have seen a dark-skinned man in the lobby. They further told me that this man was a guard, end quote. Durant claimed that Natalie was learning leaning against one of the columns uh, ne- uh, near the entrance to the resort when the three drove away. Detectives had also interviewed Deepak and Satish Kalpo at the police station, the Uh, ...Bubali police station. Deepak's statement was also taken in Papiamento... ...and Satish spoke uh, in Dutch to the officers. Like Joran, the brothers agreed that Natalie was drunk. They claimed that she approached their, uh, their Dutch friend... ...at Carlos and Charlie's, begged him to join her on the dance floor. Deepak said that Joran had declined her invitation... Satish remembered that Joran had indeed danced with the white girl that night. The brothers each recounted standing at the bar drinking whiskey and Cokes and shots of Bacardi, but neither man mentioned the body shot that Joran claimed to have sucked off Natalie's stomach. The pack told the officers that when Natalie's friends saw her hanging out the rear window of his car, they were upset. And the pack recalled, and quote. I parked... My car, and I told the girl that she should go with her friends. She refused to do this. She said that my car was beautiful and she wanted to drive around for a while. I told Jovan that I didn't think it was a good idea that she remained with us because she was drunk and I didn't want any problems. End quote. During the drive, Deepak said that Natalie and Jovan were kissing, Jovan was touching her breast. He also claimed that at one point when they had reached the lighthouse on Arashi Beach, the northernmost tip of the island, Natalie fell asleep. He told Joran to wake her up and ask her what hotel she was staying at, and he heard the girl tell Joran, the Holiday Inn. Satish's uh, statement to police was remarkably similar to his brother's, particularly the part about dropping Natalie at the Holiday Inn. Uh, the younger couple recalled that Joran was kissing and touching Natalie in the backseat of, of his brother's car and that she appeared drunk. The two brothers also recounted how Natalie spilled out of the back seat and to the pavement in front of the Holiday Inn and had refused Joran's help getting inside. Like Joran, they also described a dark-skinned man standing in the lobby Who they claim must have been the last person seen with Natalie Holloway. He's approximately one. uh, He said, "This is I'm going to quote this directly." He said, "He's approximately one point eight meters tall. He has a heavy set body. He has close cropped hair. He wore a black T-shirt. He wore black cotton lung trousers, which most of the guards wear. He had a walkie talkie in his hand and spoke by means of the walkie talkie." End quote. Um neither Beth's or Dave's group were apprised of these interrogations or any other actions that were taking place on behalf of their daughter. Beth was sure that she had seen Deepak's car in the parking lot of police headquarters on the morning she came to give an official statement to the police, but detectives failed to mention that they have spoken with the three young men. Before Dave and Detective Jacobs parted ways at the Nord Police Station that mor- that day, Jacobs cautioned him that he had received reports that his ex-wife and her uh, party had been knocking on the doors of crack houses in some Aruba's seadier neighborhoods following up on tips provided by local drug addicts in exchange for cash. Um, and he wanted... To persuade her to refrain. Aware that Beth and Jock had the drug deal gone wrong and go covered, Dave and his group began searching the remoter beaches and backcountry. He hoped that he would find his daughter alive, but he was aware that if he had been uh, killed, a freshly dug grave was more likely to be found. Beth did not coordinate her search strategies with Dave. Her parallel efforts had her. Uh, plastering missing person posters of Natalie across the length and breadth of the island. The posters featured two color photographs of Natalie and a physical description blue eyes, long blonde hair, 5 feet 4, 110 pounds. And soon everyone in Aruba was aware of the young woman's disappearance, but the story was about to be international news. Frustrated by what she perceived as police ineptitude, Beth turned to the cameras, first granting an interview to a local TV station. By June second, the family's heart-wrenching plight ran in USA Today, and had been picked up by the cable news network, CNN, and soon all the other networks followed. Beth Twitty held by he held, she held up two cell phones and said, quote, "Natalie, you can reach me on your cell phone. I have it." and it's set up for international use now and i also have my cell phone it's a, it's set up for international use please call me and i will stay here until i find you End quote. Her missing persons case was becoming mainstream cable's new father which had recently been dominated by the arrest of Michael Jackson's um, for child molestation charges When Beth and Dave first landed in Aruba, local interest in their daughter was moderate. Now it seemed the whole island was looking for Natalie. For six days, police officers, members of the Royal Dutch Marines, hundreds of volunteers, including Aruban citizens and American tourists vacationing on the island, combed the beaches and hiked the desert looking for any fresh disturbances in the earth. By Saturday, June 4th, Ten investigators from the FBI joined the three agents who had already been dispatched to the island. Dutch Coast Guard officers searched the waters as helicopters flew overhead. Volunteers from Aruba Search and Rescue Federation, the Aruba Red Cross, and other local organizations joined Dave in the daily land searches. In churches across Aruba, congregations prayed for Natalie's safe return, a gesture that touched her deeply. Uh, religious parents. The reward money being offered for information leading to Natalie's safe return was growing and now stood at fifty thousand dollars. Beth had been staying in her daughter's room at the Holiday Inn since her arrival on Aruba and the hotel employee in Fresh uh, came to the room and told her that they have located a video footage from cameras outside of the lobby that they thought they have spotted Natalie. The employee escorted Beth and Job to a nearby room where they found a group of uniformed police officers around a video screen and they asked her, is that her? Is that Natalie? There was a young woman with long blonde hair entering the lobby and Beth looked at it and said no, that's not her. She Recognized the the young blonde teen as Natalie's friend Madison. So they kept looking through the video of the rest of the evening and there was no sign of Natalie. There were no signs of Joran, Deepak, or Satish either. Beth remembered the scene that Joran and Deepak had been willing to recreate the night of the confrontation in the Sluys driveway. Everyone, Jovan, Deepak included, had returned to the Holiday Inn, and there, Jovan and Deepak have performed a convincing reenactment of the events, demonstrating exactly where they have dropped off Natalie. If the story had been true, the cameras would have recorded the incident. The boys have concocted the entire story. The story and the video footage did not match. There was no dark skinned security guard on staff, not that night or any night. The three young men had flagrantly, flagrantly misled the police. The evidence of what was not on the tape proven. Everything Joran had said had been a lie. Beth was now confident investigators had all the information they needed to arrest him. June 2, 2010, Lima, Peru. Ricardo Flores made a vow to himself not to leave the hotel tack until his daughter's body was removed from the hotel. Just after 4.30 a.m., when Lima was still dark, Detective Tong and two other officers wheeled the gurney, supporting a casket draped in black up the ramp from the hotel's underground parking garage. Stephanie's father understood the feeling frenzy that occurs when reporters and photographers try to capture the scene of a murder and a body's removal, especially when famous people are involved. He was so grateful that a friend had provided a proper casket so that his daughter would not have to suffer the indignity of being carried out in a body bag for the entire world to see. Captain Juan Cañan told Flores... That his daughter's body would undergo an autopsy later that morning. He simply wanted to, to be home holding his wife, who he had last seen collapse in, in grief on the sidewalk. And without the support of his sons, Richie and Enrique, in the car with him, he would not even have been able to endure the short drive. Rich, Richie used the quiet in the car to gently recount the grisly scene he had witnessed in the hotel room. Because there was blood everywhere, he wrongly assumed that his daughter had been stabbed to death. He spared them the physical injuries to his sister's face. The three men strode into the house, arriving just ahead of the media. Ricardo found Marialena curled up on the couch in the living room. The sedative she had been given by the paramedics had helped, but... Her face was contorted with grief, tears running down her cheeks. Kneeling down, he just held her, kissed her. He was, he was also crying, but he knew that as the patriarch of the family, he needed to remain strong. Just after 8 a.m., the phone rang, and as promised, Detective Kayan was keeping Flores updated. Vandersloot was already fled. he had already fled Peru. He said that the police had just spoken with Interpol and had been informed that Joran had crossed into Chile near the Peruvian border town of Tacna on May 31st at three in the afternoon. Two days earlier. Vandersloot was moving south and investigators worried that he was headed for Argentina. Hanging up the phone, Ricardo looked out the window to where dozens of reporters were camped out in front of his house. He was a savvy entertainment promoter, and he realized he could use the media to his advantage. Flory's relationship with the press was sometimes good, sometimes not. But he wanted the press with its ability to disseminate information to help in Duran's capture. He wanted everyone to be familiar with Durant's image and knew talking to the media would keep the case in the headlines. He was exhausted but rose to the task as he stepped outside to address the cameras and the microphones. He was determined to see that her killer be brought to justice. Because of the notoriety of his daughter's alleged assailant, Stephanie's murder was fast becoming an international story. Television crews from the United States and Holland joined the local journalists standing on the other side of the security gate surrounding the Flores' home. His tone was calm and monotonic as he explained to reporters what he knew about Stephanie's last evening. She had been with friends, she met Van der Sloot in a casino, he had somehow lured her back to the hotel where he murdered her. And this is uh, Ricardo's words: quote, Vandersloot is now on the run, possibly headed to Argentina, and I need your help in bringing him back to Peru. This was not the first murder he committed; he did the same thing in 2005. But because he was underage and there was no evidence, he had walked away to kill to kill again. vandersloot was previously implicated in the murder of a teenager in Aruba." Her body was never found. This time, Van must be stopped before he kills again. I don't want this to happen to other families. I don't want other families to go through what we're going through now, end quote. He finished holding up two photos of Jovan as a teenager dressed in the the lime green striped polo shirt and he said this is my daughter's killer and once he said that he sort of broke down and f- with his his he was uh, choking almost and because he was sobbing so at that moment the the, the sons took over the microphones meanwhile at Lima Central Morgue um Dr. Juan Martin Villalobos and his assistant carefully lifted the badly decomposed corpse onto the stainless steel table in preparation for the autopsy. He looked through Captain Juan Callan's crimes in notes, and he read aloud for the benefit of the ind- other individuals in the room. Dr. Lobos read to the team that the body had been discovered on top of a blood-soaked sheet. A tennis racket had been found uh, amid the clothing and other items near the body but had tested negative for blood. If the racket had been the murder weapon, the body would have presented bruises matching the patterns and dimensions of the rackets, and there were none present. The body was cold to the touch— A window of the hotel room had been left open and the body temperature of the victim had dropped room to room temperature. The pathologist didn't need a form to know that the victim had suffered a violent and unnatural death. Looking at the body, this was unmistakably a homicide. Stephanie's head alone told the story of a violent struggle. Both eyes were circled in dark blue-red bruises, Her nose crushed and nearly flattened. More bruises cover her cheeks and chin, and a bloody, viscous fluid oozed from her left ear. There were signs of petechial hemorrhaging, small blotches created as capillaries explode on her face. These tiny red pinpoint marks occur when pressure is applied to the neck, classic sign of strangulation. The 21-year-old student on the table before him was dressed in black sleeveless T-shirt, a long sleeve beige button-down shirt soaked in blood on the back from the neck to the bottom, a brown bra, and red underwear. He noted that beneath the underwear was a sanitary napkin completely soaked in blood. The victim had been menstruating. Villalobos cut away the clothing before removing Stephanie's jewelry. Stephanie's once dark brown eyes were now protruding from their sockets. A contact lens was missing from the right eye. Pupils are opaque, fixed, and dilated, with time of death occurring between two and three days. Villalobos saw that the body had remained in the same position since the time of death. This was a fairly easy conclusion to reach given the victim's fixed lividity. When a person dies, the heart stops pumping blood and lacking pressure, the blood begins to settle and pulls in the parts of the body closest to the ground and they take on a darker color. The victim's coloring was consistent with a body lying on the floor in the same position for several days. Rigor mortis, a natural stiffening of the body, uh, which occurs in the hours immediately after death, had come and gone. Stephanie's battered corpse was limp and flaccid. Pretrefaction had begun to set in, and her once-beautiful face was now a horrifying kaleidoscope of green, blue, and purple. Taking some measurements, Villalobos noted that Stephanie measured 5 feet 6 inches tall and weighted 154 pounds. She appeared well-nourished and hydrated and had no tattoos. Her upper body presented more recent injuries, including multiple bruises predominantly to the left-hand side of her face, neck, chest, arms, and abdomen. Her straight, once, uh, long chestnut brown hair was caked with blood. Her sickening red fluid oozed from both nostrils as dry blood mixed with other secretions created when a body decomposes. Her lips appeared blue and moist to the touch. Her teeth were intact. Bruising around the neck was consistent with strangulation. More bruises and lesions were present on her chest. Her stomach appeared distended and was covered with bruises and lesions as well. More bruises, lesions, scrapes, and cuts covered her upper and lower extremities. The second finger on her right hand had battle injuries. She had fought hard, but in vain. Villalobos found no sign of recent sexual activity based on examination Stephanie Flowers, or Stephanie Flores, I should say, was a virgin. There were no signs of trauma, to the top of the cranium, but there were internal lesions on the scalp and the rear base of the skull. The soft tissue of the brain in an advanced state of putrefaction had turned brittle. Dr. vidalobos discovered a hemorrhage to the dura mater, the tough uh, fibrous membrane that en- envelops the brain and spinal cord. Another hemorrhage was found in the fossa media Media, which is the home to the brain's temporal lobes, which controls speech, vision, and memory. Subarachnoid hemorrhages of the cerebellum were noted. Essentially, blood vessels just outside of Stephanie's brain had ruptured, allowing blood to flow into the empty space between the brain and the wall of the skull. The build of blood would have created pressure on the brain Usually, this will result in an intense headache, nausea, vomiting, and, pe- and perhaps even unconsciousness. But was doubted the brain injuries themselves were enough to kill this young woman. Had the assailant inflicted these injuries alone, in all likelihood, Stephanie Flores could have been saved. Bijalovos probed his fingers into the muscle tissue of Stephanie's neck. He discovered bright red hemorrhaging Uh, lining the 3rd, 4th, and 5th cervical vertebrae, indicating that she had been choked. Her neck had not been broken, contrary to prematurely leaked news reports. An x-ray of her hyoid bone, which is a fragile, uh, fragile bone in the neck position under the jaw, it raised the possibility that Stephanie may have been alive, but unconscious for quite some time before succumbing to her internal injuries. When the horseshoe-shaped hyoid bone is broken, it almost certainly means strangulation, but Stephanie's hired bone was intact. Dr. Villalobos discovered a white plastic gastric band in the young woman's stomach. Stephanie, it appeared, had struggled uh, with her weight, that she had surgically placed a bariatric band. Toxicology results from the samples revealed the presence of amphetamines. The discovery of of, of amphetamines in Stephanie's system prompted a range of speculation and theories. Amphetamines, however, are not not a classic drug associated with date rape. Amphetamines are stimulants with effects just the opposite of sluggishness and lethargy. More likely, Stephanie's behavior on the video was the consequence of extreme fatigue and alcohol consumption. The tape in the hotel was timestamped 5:20 a.m., and the casino footage had shown her sipping a glass of wine. Additional tests for cocaine, barbiturates, marijuana, and other illegal drugs came back negative. The presence of amphetamines most likely had no bearing on the criminal investigation. The deteriorated condition of Stephanie's body made it impossible to get a blood sample from her remains. Instead, a sample was obtained from the blood-soaked shirt uh, that was found on her body. Stephanie was type A. No other blood but hers was found at the crime scene. Perhaps the most disturbing finding in the autopsy was the possibility that Stephanie may have been drifting in and out of consciousness for hours after her attack, helplessly lying on the hotel floor room. Her arms, fingers, and legs were blue and cyanotic, indicating that the deficiency of oxygen in her blood occurred before she died, rather than after she died. The horrifying scenario had Joran showering off the evidence as Stephanie, alive but barely conscious, lay on the hotel room floor. As for the cause of death, Dr. Villa Lobos explained that Stephanie's body had remained undiscovered for two to three days, had been in bad shape, and had been, in his words, in a state of putrefaction that makes an autopsy difficult. He concluded that Stephanie's death had been caused by the combined result of the damage, to the brain and cervical trauma due to choking. Villalo was also determined that the causing agent for Stephanie's injuries was a blunt instrument. The, investi- the investigative detective needed to reach their own conclusions regarding causing agent, all the evidence pointing to a rage killing. Kayan and his team suspected that the blunt instruments used to kill Stephanie were Banderslut's fists, that the Dutch traveler had savagely beaten the young woman for her cash, which he needed to gamble, and after smothering her and rendering her unconscious, he posed her body to make it appear as though she had been the victim of a violent sexual assault. He then began his coffee venture to help create opportunities for other assailants and alternative explanations for her horrifyingly Unnecessary death June 4, 2000, 2005, Aruba Beth tweeted impassioned pleas For the safe return of her missing daughter seized headlines in the United States And the family's ordeal became media obsession For the cable news shows Natalie's case with no body and no bloody crime scene Let imaginations run wild about her fate from a voluntary runaway to a sex slave captive to a victim of murder. Aruba's deputy police chief, Gerald Dumpit, later claimed that Beth's decision to go before the media so early in the investigation pressured him and under intense media scrutiny, he made hasty decisions that he would not have normally made, including the premature arrest of people who should have not been suspects. Natalie had been missing for six days when Dump Pig, a well-groomed man before the cameras, delivered a cryptic message. He said that they will work indigenantly. He wants everybody to hold their breath for the next 24 hours. There will be developments after the weekend. Without mentioning any names, pick the police department's second-in-command under Police Chief uh, Jean van der Straten, told reporters that two Surinamese men and a Dutchman were the investigation's three most important leads. They admitted that they have dropped Natalie at the hotel the night she went missing. In response to questions, the deputy police chief spelled out his department's three theories. One is that these persons of interest might have done something wrong to Natalie. The other area is that Natalie is just missing in terms of being somewhere else for whatever reason. And the last theory is, of course, kidnapping. Beth Twitty had seen the videotape from the lobby of the Holiday Inn. Imagine her overwhelming dismay when she awoke on the morning of June 6th and learned that two dark-skinned security guards had been arrested and not Joran and the Cowper brothers. In a pre-dawn raid, Aruban police had stormed the homes of two black men who until recently had worked as security guards at the Allegro Aruba Grand about a mile down the beach from the Holiday Inn. Security guard Antonios Mickey john was asleep in his bed when a police tactical team knocked on the door of his house. The house was next to a drive in Burger King in a nearly all black neighborhood in St. Nicholas, which is Aruba's second largest city. Before sunrise, John was dragged from his bed, handcuffed in front of his mother, and led to an awaiting unmarked police vehicle. The arresting officers, including Dennis Jacobs, were in plain clothes. They dismissively ignored John's hysterical mother, Amy, and refused to tell her why her son was being taken into custody. Somebody uh, had tipped off the media and cameras captured the arrest. Although fluent in English, John spoke little Dutch. His... uh, He moved with his mother to Aruba, but he is a native from Granada. He had never been in trouble with the law. He had no idea why police had come for him. John knew he had done nothing wrong and grew concerned when police started asking questions about the missing American woman. By then, everyone in Aruba was familiar with the case. John had seen the posters of the pretty blunt teen on buildings and in windows of stores and bars everywhere he went. There was something about the demeanor of the investigators, however, that seemed sympathetic. He would later recall that he was treated well by the arresting officers and sensed that it was because they knew he was not guilty of any crime. He hoped he was not being framed. He was a black man living on a Dutch colony and knew that racial inequality was a serious problem. During the first and this is him making those statements by the way, during the first of the two interviews, police conducted with uh, with John he explained that he had worked at the Allegro Grand Hotel on Palm Beach up until May 31st 2005. He was employed by the ASIS garden company and as his assignment had been as a security guard at the Allegro Grand, the luxury hotel. This hotel had been closed to overnight guests for nearly a month. Only the casino had remained open until May 31st. At that time, the casino was also closing for renovations. The contract for security service between the Allegro Grand and the ASIS guarding expired at midnight May 31st and would not be renegotiated until the hotel reopened. Therefore, John found himself temporarily unemployed. Um, when asked about his uniform, John described the dark blue trousers and white vest provided by his employer. Uh, he normally wear a black windbreaker when, and during the night shifts, the dark color slacks and the black jacket matched the outfit that Deepak and Satish had described to police. They asked him, do you ever go to other hotels when you are working? And he said, I sometimes walk to the Radisson and the Holiday Inn. And so they asked him, so when was the last time you were the Holiday Inn? And his answer was, on Sunday, May 29th, around noon, I went to the hotel for the celebration on the beach. I also went on Sunday, May 29th, around 9 p.m. He said that his girlfriend from Boston had been in town, and then there was where they had agreed to meet. The two have spent several hours at the sports bar at the Holiday Inn, the same bar where Jovan had run into Natalie and her group. He and his date remained there until midnight before heading home. The detective asked, did you kill Natalie Holloway? And his answer was, I have not kidnapped or murdered anybody. As John sat across the table from detectives, anxious, nervous, mystified, police officers were being dispatched to conduct a room-by-room search of the Allegro Grand. It was an active construction site with hundreds of empty rooms, making it an ideal place to stash a body. Searches were also starting in other parts of the island. While the police continued to interview Mickey John, his friend and fellow security guard Abraham Alfred Jones was led into an adjacent room for questioning. Jones had also been roused from his bed and taken into custody by undercover officers that morning. He told uh, police his story. Uh, He was was 29 years old, born and raised in Aruba. He lived with his common-law wife, Cynthia, and their young daughter. In his security guard position at the hotels, he often conversed with tourists who were overwhelmingly Americans and his English was strong. Jones told detectives that he began working as a security guard in 2002 and, like John, wore dark blue trousers and a white shirt when when on the job. In the evenings, he wears a black Adidas jacket with three white stripes. He carried a walkie-talkie while patrolling the grounds of the hotel. He claimed on May 30th that he worked the night shift alongside Mickey John and another Aruban guard. He said, and quote, I worked the shift from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m., then 3 p.m. to 11 p.m., then 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., describing what essentially was a 24-hour workday. After my shift, I sometimes go to the Holiday Inn to enjoy the live bands, end quote. They asked him, do you ever meet or speak with the girl in the posters? Referring to Natalie Holloway. He said, I that he had read in the newspapers about the girl being missing, but he had never met nor spoken with her. After the interrogations, Mickey John and Abraham Jones remained in custody in separate facilities. Neither man was told why he was being held or what charges might he file against him. Meanwhile, the press was reporting that both men were being detained on suspicion of kidnapping and murder. Mickey John was transported to the St. Nicholas police station, and for nine days he was locked in a small cell where his bed was a slab of poured concrete. His smells consisted of dried chicken and fish, mashed potatoes, and lettuce. Despite his chronic acid reflux, he was denied his medication. Abraham Jones was taken to a different police facility in Nord. Jones' mother publicly denounced her son's detention, insisting that there was no evidence linking him to Natalie Holloway's disappearance. His wife agreed. Cynthia was sure her husband was being framed. Under a Aruban law, um, the men could be held for up to 116 days without being formally charged. But a lucky break prevented this happening. Four days after John's detention, a new inmate arrived. The new inmate was Deepak Kalpo. That Thursday morning, June 9th, two separate and simultaneous raids had taken place, one of, at the home of Jovan van der Sloot and the other at the Kalpo brothers' residence. At 5.30 in the morning, police had arrived at the door of the Vandersloot's. Joran's mother hurried to the guest house with Joran and says, Hey, Joran, the police are here to arrest you." Ironically, this was Joran's graduation day. Joran's college plans and his entire future would have to be put put on hold at this time. One of the officers had begun reciting his rights as a detainee. And unsure of what to do, Joran held his hands out in front of him, expecting to be handcuffed, but he was told... No, no, go ahead, go brush your teeth, change your clothes, and when you come back, then we're going to cuff you. So, all three men were brought to the Central Police Station in Oranjestad. Joran did not remove the towel, he put a towel on his face so that the press, you know, for because of the pictures. So, he removed the towel from his face to it. No, he did not even remove the towel from his face during his 20-minute ride to the back of the police car until he got to central booking in, in pack uh silver Honda was impounded. Uh, the computers and other evidence from both homes were seized. Jovan was led into a building in handcuffs through a back door and brought to a rear holding area with 20 empty cells Officers remove his handcuffs and place him in cell number one. On his way to what he thought was going to be an interrogation room, Jovan passed his friend Satish, and he whispered to him, Don't worry, just stick to your story, they would have to let us go in ten days. Joran was not interrogated that day. Instead, he was transferred to another building um, in another facility at the North Police Station. And that's where security Abraham Jones was also being held. Police opted to detain Deepak and put him in the St. Nicholas facility. That's where Mickey John was. And that afternoon, he launched his own private investigation of Deepak. So one of the things that John did, Mickey John, was to fake his accent. Instead of, of speaking with his Granadine or Granadian um, accent he spoke with a Jamaican accent and so he asked Deepak tell me the truth you saw the guys in the news referring to the two dark skinned security guards and he said where do you think they're from and Deepak said oh one of them I heard he's from Granada And for the next couple of hours, John starts singing Rasta songs. And he starts speaking with a thick Caribbean accent like Jamaican. And Deepak had no reason to withhold information from his new friend. So Deepak confessed that the story about dropping the girl at the Holiday Inn and leaving leaving her talking with the black security guard was not true. He said that he, the Dutch guy, and the Dutch guy's father had concocted the story, believing that Natalie would resurface in a couple of days. Deepak explained to John what really happened that night. They drove to the lighthouse, and he and his brother dropped Joran and Natalie at the public, more deserted beach next to the Marion Hotel, and he and Satish went home. Deepak continued that when he got home, he went on his computer to chat with some friends. At some point, he received a cell phone message from Joran saying that when he got home, he would chat with him online. From what Deepak was saying, the Dutch guy was the last person with Natalie that night. He also took notice that Deepak was strangely calm for someone who was being questioned in such a serious crime. He was so quiet that John was compelled to periodically check on him and, and, and ask him, Are you okay, Deepak? Are you okay? When he was confident that he has extracted all the important information from Deepak, Mickey John decided it was time for a proper introduction. And he said um, to Deepak, Hey man, it's me, John said. Mickey John and he was walking by his cell when he said that because he was going to his lawyers' meeting. He said, I am the security guard from Grenada. And for a moment, Deepak stood dumbfounded as he processed what he had just been told. The man he believed was from Jamaica was actually the innocent scapegoat of his false incrimination. And Deepak said, I'm sorry, ma'am, you shouldn't be here. I lied and you are here because of my life. So John immediately told the police detaining him what he had learned from his jailmate, and his clever interrogation had accomplished what police had not been able to do. So now with this new version of events, all oh, the suspicion pointed to Jovan Sloot. So just after noon on June 11th, they set. D, uh, Deepak with investigators in the police headquarters in Orangestad for the fourth time since Natalie disappeared. And Deepak acknowledged that he had misled investigators from the start. What had started out as a small lie, covering for a friend, has snowballed into a full blown crime, interfering with a police investigation. For the next several hours, Deepak revised his events of May 30th. Just a day earlier, he had provided police with an alibi witness, a party boat disc jockey named Steve Crows, who he claimed had witnessed the three young men dropping Natalie at the holiday and in the early morning hours of May 30th. He had even provided police with a phone number for Crows, who he said was a customer of the Internet Cafe where he worked in downtown Oramnestad. Just 24 hours later, Deepak was offering detectives uh, Burke and Kelly a radically different version of the events of Monday, May 30th. He confirmed that he and Satish had indeed driven around the island with Duran and Natalie in the backseat, but they had not dropped her off at the Holiday Inn. He also confessed that Natalie was not as drunk as he and the others had described her. He said, "I lied in my previous statement about being unsteady. uh, About her being unsteady on her feet when she stepped off the stage at uh, Carter and Charlie's. She had a steady walk. She she was rested. She was fine. She was not, um, you know, as drunk as they painted her to for her to be. Once the the three locals and Natalie were on the way in Deepak's car." He said that Satish popped a pornographic movie into the DVD system and that Joran told Satish to turn off the video because he didn't want Natalie to think that they were perverts. Deepak told the detectives that on the way to the lighthouse, he pulled the car off the road so that he could relieve himself near Arashi Beach and then they continued north on L.G. Smith Boulevard. He has seen Jovan and Natalie kissing, uh, but admitted that he had lied in earlier statements about the rest. That when he was talking about um, Jovan touching certain areas of her body, uh, putting his hand up the skirt, he that he said that he lied. That didn't happen. Driving on on the uh, the stretch of this boulevard, L. G. Smith Boulevard, near the Marriott Hotel. Deepak said that he asked Joran if they should head back into town. Joran said no to just let him out of the car there. Deepak pulled into a beach parking area and watched as Joran and Natalie got out together. He said he asked his friend how he was planning on getting home. And Joran replied, I'll just walk. He's saying that he and Natalie could stroll down the beach in the moonlight and he would drop her off at the holiday Inn. Deepak said that he and Satish saw Jovan and Natalie walking in the direction of the beach, holding hands. And after that, they drove home. Satish went to bed immediately. Deepak logged on to his MSN account and chatted with a friend. And he told his chatmate that he has just dropped Jovan and an American girl off the beach, at the beach, and he was waiting up to make sure that Jovan make it okay. The group had a buddy system that they would call each other when they got to make sure that they got home safe. Around 3 in the morning, Joran phoned and said he was still walking home. And Deepak said um, if he hook up with the girl. And Jovan said, no, we just went into the water adding that Natalie fell asleep on the beach and he left her there. And so Deepak asked, what do you mean you left her sleeping on the beach? For him, leaving a a young woman alone and vulnerable on the darkened beach had made him angry. And Jovan's answer was, oh, well, I'm walking home barefoot because I left my sneakers on the beach. And Deepak said to him, um, you're not making any sense. And he felt that the entire call was disturbing and that the story sounded wrong. So the following evening around midnight, Deepak said uh, that he hooked up with Jovan at the casino inside the Radisson Aruba Resort and Casino. And Jovan was playing poker with two friends, Guido and Andre. Deepak, when Deepak got there, and Joran seemed pretty drunk, belligerent. And at one point, Joran got into a heated argument with a tourist about cheating. The three friends dragged Joran out of the casino. Widow and Andre went home, and Joran wanted to keep playing cards. Deepak said the two climbed into his silver Honda and headed to the casino at the Wyndham Hotel to play in blackjack. While pulling into the parking lot of the Wyndham, Jovan received the angry call from his father about Americans camped out in front of the house. After the conversation, Jovan said to him that if he had been, his, that he has been his father calling and there were the police were there at his house. Jovan told him that it was about Natalie that she was missing, and despite being told by his father to stay at the Wyndham, Jovan and Deepak drove to the Vandersloot home. And Depak said that not, that um, Jolan said, what the F is wrong with that bitch? And then he said to Depak, if the police ask any questions, we should say the following. We left together with the girl when we departed, Carler, uh, Carlos and Charlies, that we drove around, that I had kissed and fingered her that she fell asleep in the car and that we have returned her to the hotel. Joran realized that he only had a few minutes to come up with the story with Deepak and Satish as his alibi. Deepak admitted that Joran had heard um, his father when he told him to wait at the Wyndham. He said that he and Joran were still in the parking lot preparing to go into the casino when the call came. Jovan insisted to Deepak they drive back to his house rather than wait for his father and the police. He didn't want the embarrassment of a confrontation in a public place. He needed time to craft a story and make sure Deepak was on the same page prior to any questioning by police. Deepak described Jovan ordering, get your brother on the phone as they pull up to his house. Deepak said that he t- then told Satish exactly what he was supposed to say if anyone tried to question him. The two men came up with the idea about directing suspicion toward a security guard after the confrontation in front of the Vandersloot hole. And Deepak, uh, recalled that Joran said, be sure that your brother Satish, Satish adds that piece to his story. Investigators wanted to know why Deepak had perjured himself. If his new version of the events were true, then neither of the carboys had done anything to Natalie. They had put themselves in harm's way for no reason at all. Before, they were innocent, and now they were potential accomplices. Deepak explained his two reasons for lying. One, his friend had asked him to lie and, he, too, he was afraid to, of the police for seeing himself in terrible trouble, if not reappeared. The idea that Joran had killed or even harmed the young American had seemed ridiculous to him at the time. Deepak said that Joran had been sociable and not at all aggressive at Carlos and Charlie's that night. During the interview, police asked Deepak if there was anyone who could corroborate his story and he offered Freddy Sedan's name, Joran's neighbor, friend, and confidant. Joran and Freddy had known each other for a long time, and Joran trusts him. If you go and talk to Freddy, he will tell you the made-up story, maybe also the truth. Deepak's new version of the events of May 30th was filled with other stunning admissions. Natalie had never made any racist comments as Joran had, had, claimed. He also said that Joran's father, Paulus, believed their story and even found a lawyer for the couple brothers. And so the, this, uh, the police, the detective asked him, what do you think happened to Natalie Holloway? And Deepak said, I think that Joran raped her, but is afraid to admit it. I don't think he murdered her. So they ask him, why do you th- what makes you think he raped her? And he says, I think that because he doesn't want to tell the truth. Shortly before midnight, um two detectives, uh uh Trump and Shaniro, uh Kelly, loaded the prisoner Deepak back into the police car and returned him back to the cell. And to his cell at the police station in St. Nicholas. Deepak told officers that during one of his visits to Vandersloot, the Vandersloot home in the days after Natalie went missing, Jovan's father had come into the room with a law book and explained what they needed to know in case they were arrested. According to Deepak, Paulus Vandersloot told them that authorities were required to advise them of their rights. That they would first be held for six hours. That they could be locked up after that. That they would have to be brought before a district attorney within two days. That the district attorney could decide to hold them for an additional eight days. That the judge commissioner could order them held for another eight days. So in total, they could be held for 116 days and after that, they could go home because without a body, the police did not have a case. So Detective Trump said so Jovan's father gave you guys some legal advice and did the pack confirmed yes, that's correct. Polus von der Sutsuppose nobody, no case statement to his son and the Cowper brothers prompted the police to open an investigation into Mr. Paulus van der Sloot's possible involvement in the cover-up of the crime. Was this textbook legal advice or something more sinister? How would Paulus van der Sloot know that there wasn't a body unless he had inside information? There was even speculation that if Natalie had been murdered, Paulus had helped dispose of the bodies. Over the next few days, Deepak described that management that he and Duran had received from Paulus the night Beth, Beth Tweedy's um, group came to the Van home to search for Natalie. And after their reenactment at the Holiday Inn, where Deepak and Joran had provided the blow-by-blow account of Natalie's um, getting out of the car and getting into the hotel lobby, when they returned to the house, Polus scolded and lectured them and he asked them how have you now learned your lesson and the pack said that he answered yes never give a ride to a stranger this is the end of this episode stay tuned for the next episode the next episode we will continue discussing simultaneously the disappearance um of Natalie, all the, the, the police interrogations, the arrest of Joran, his uh, his father, uh, the Sati, uh, the Kelpo brothers, and in Lima, Peru, we are going to explain how did Joran was able to escape from Peru and to go all the way to Chile. Have a great week. And thank you for listening to The Murder Book. Thanks again for tuning into The Murder Book, a true crime podcast. You can find all episodes of The Murder Book for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Our Heart Radio, Podchaser, Amazon Music. You can go to my website, themurderbooktruecrimepodcast.com, all resources used in researching this episode, including books and newspaper articles, are on my website. We are on Facebook and on Twitter at The Murder Book One. Send your comments or suggestions at my email, The Murder Book Five at gmail.com. Please subscribe and leave a five star rating so that others can find this podcast and it helps me get better. Episodes come out. Every Monday, and there's a Spanish version for this episode. Enjoy your week.